a good takeaway, no matter what kind of advisor you are, if you know there's life insurance that's owned by a business entity, again, whether it's buy, sell, or, or on your key employees, whatever it might be, it, whatever life insurance an entity owns, go and look for that notice of consent. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sachs. Rachel, how are you? I'm well. How are you doing? I am also doing very well, enjoying uh, cooler weather, not hot Arizona summer weather at the moment. So I, I can't complain about that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely jealous there. But we finally got a monsoon. Finally. You did. Mm-hmm. It was it was a good one. It was a doozy, actually. Someone said that there was um, what do they call it, like the water spouts, you know, the little almost a tornado, mm-hmm. actually, in Tucson mm-hmm. last week, and wow. a lot of trees went down, power lines, all the washes are flooded, the good old good old monsoon, and all the the crazy bugs that come out during monsoon season are now out. So our pool is very very disgusting, full of bugs right now. But <laughs> that's summer for you. That's excellent. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, it's a true monsoon down there when the like hand sized beetles start crawling around everywhere. Oh my gosh, the Palo Verde beetles. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're out. I've seen one so far and those are just, those are just scary. I don't understand those. I don't understand how that's a real thing. It's just way too scary. No, it doesn't seem possible really. <laughs> I don't, us, of all of the desert critters, that one's the most jarring every year to see because they're just so big they're not Mm -hmm. like dangerous or anything it's just like when you see them it's like oh my god i didn't know Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. bugs got that big and then obviously rattlesnakes are the the other one where i'm not too fond of seeing those this year i've only seen one alive i've seen quite a few run over on the roads but only one alive (laughs) i feel like it's a pretty mild year that's pretty good that's yeah that's, that's not too bad actually yeah, I have not knock on wood wherever I have wood in my office. I have not seen a scorpion yet this year. I actually have not seen a scorpion for the past two years. And for the past two years, we have not had our pest company come out. So I'm, like, living on the edge right now. I'm really scared that at some point we're going to see this, the bark scorpion or some other scorpion. But so far, so good. So I don't know. Whatever the, the next predator is is doing their job, apparently, for me. Yeah. Wow. Well, yes, knock on glass that that does not happen. <laughs> uh, you got to hope that that works. Yeah. The, it, the interesting thing about scorpions, uh, not everybody knows, is that they, they glow under a black light. You hold a black, black light over them, they light up like it's a Christmas light. Mm-hmm. And so I have some black light flashlights, so I'll go out in my backyard in the summertime and try to look for them. And most of the time I find zero, but sometimes when I go out, there are several crawling around out that uh, I immediately smashed. So they, uh, they're they they're around. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter where you live in town. They pretty much are there. Uh-huh. Exactly. Yep. My my husband will yep. do that. He'll, he'll go scorpion hunting with the black line. If they're over the wall, I'm sorry, dude. You're on our turf. It's it's over. <laughs> Trespassing. Mm-hmm. Punish, punishable by extreme prejudice. Yes. Well... <laughs> Well, uh, speaking of somebody who doesn't have to deal with that day to day, we're joined by our good friend Steve Gorin. Steve is a partner at Thompson Colburn in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, Steve, we appreciate you joining us virtually. You don't have to be in person to deal with all of the dangerous desert critters. Thank you. Yes. Well, 
actually, I think that we're we're really trying to help our clients uh, protect them from other scorpions, like the sting of taxes. Yes, exactly. The uh, the uh, figurative scorpions and rattlesnakes out there. Well, we're uh, we're pleased to have you, Steve. One of the things that we thought would be really fun to chat with you about, because you're a well-known expert in the area, uh, is buy-sell agreements, life insurance, and funding those sorts of things. So I thought maybe to to frame the issue, maybe we should just talk about what is a buy-sell agreement versus, say, a cross-purchase agreement, because you kind of hear both those terms thrown around. You know, what are the pluses and minuses to those? And then talk about ways that life insurance is used and ways that the beneficial uh, tax benefits of life insurance, the the tax-free payment of proceeds of life insurance, can be lost, the so-called transfer for value rules, and then maybe talk about some of the little traps for the unwary, especially in the in the realm of employer-owned life insurance. If, if all of that makes sense to you and Rachel, I, I say we jump into it. All right. So we'll contrast a redemption agreement from a cross-purchase. So in a redemption agreement, the entity itself, whether it's a corporation or an LLC or some other kind of partnership, <clears throat> the entity itself will buy out somebody who's leaving. And um, they might be leaving feet first or head first. Uh, and and then with a cross purchase, you have the owners buying each other out. So um, so if Brenda, Rachel, and I were in business, uh, and and uh, and Rachel wanted to buy me out, um, then we would use that cross purchase agreement for her to buy me out. Uh, or or maybe maybe Brenda and Rachel would want to both buy me out. Um, and if you want to kind of compare and contrast, well. Um, Let's suppose that we've got, um, you know, Brent, who's been practicing law all these years, and he's got a little nest egg he's saved up, and and Rachel, who's been at it for only a few years, and she's she's doing well, but she hadn't quite been able to accumulate the massive amounts that Brent has. So you're gonna go and buy me out. So if the two of you're gonna go and buy me out, well, Brent is gonna be in a better position to buy me out than Rachel would be. Um, now. What if what if we're all in a company and the company is going to buy me out? Well, that's going to be probably a little bit more doable from Rachel's perspective because she doesn't have to come up with the money. And when it comes to borrowing from a bank or whatever, um, you know, Rachel doesn't have to she doesn't have to go and 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 pledge her entire life away and whatever. And you know, the company can just borrow from the bank and, and buy me out. And the company may have all this income that's coming into it. So uh, when you have a redemption agreement by a company, you know, that tends to be your deep pocket. And so a lot of times it's easier from a financial viewpoint to do the redemption. Um, whereas with the cross-purchase, you know, each each of the other owners has to perform and they, you know, they may or they may have differing abilities to perform. Um, so uh, the cross-purchase um tends to be something that requires a lot more engineering. Um, now, on the other hand, um, from a, an income tax perspective, a cross-purchase is more efficient than a buy-sell, and it kind of depends on your entity as to, as to whether, uh, how, what the tax efficiency is. Uh, if you have, if you have a partnership, you can probably have a redemption and everything works out fine because you can do Kind of special allocations in your partnership agreement. Um, so 
whenever I say partnership, that includes an LLC that's taxed as a partnership. Um, now, what if you have a corporation? So you can have a corporation that pays its own taxes, which is called a C corporation, or you can have a corporation where the shareholders pay the taxes on the company's income. That's called an S corporation. Well, let's suppose you have a C corporation and, and that C corporation, um, buys a policy on my life and, and I die and, and the corporation buys me out. Um, well, what happens to the tax basis of, of everybody's ownership? So my tax basis, when I die, it gets a new tax basis and then the company can buy me out. That's income tax free to me. What would happen to Brent's tax basis and Rachel's tax basis? Nothing would happen to their tax basis. The C corporation is buying, is buying me out with its own money. Nothing happens to their tax basis. What if it's an S corporation? Well, if it's an S corporation, it depends what, what, what kind of a method of accounting they're on, whether they're on the, what's called the cash method or the accrual method. If, if they're on the cash method, there may be ways to kind of structure things where, um, where I get bought out and, and they get tax basis for the life insurance that the company collects. And so they can get basis in my buyout. But if they're on the accrual method, then something really, really weird happens. So let's suppose I was being bought out for $300,000 and I own a third of the stock of this S Corp. So um, if it's on the accrual method, the IRS says, well, um, when at the time that I died, all events that occurred that, that, that entitled the company to the $300,000 life insurance death benefit. Because I was dead. I mean, there was nothing more. Yeah, you had to do some paperwork, turn in the life insurance form, but I was dead. They owed the money. So at that point, at the moment of my death, not only did my basis get a new, did my stock get a new basis of $300,000, but the $300,000 that got collected got allocated one third to Brent, one third to Rachel, and one third to my estate. So so now Brent gets $100,000 basis, Rachel gets $100,000 basis, and my estate gets $100,000 basis. So now I've got a tax base. My estate has a tax basis of $400,000. The $300,000 basis step up and the $100,000 in the life insurance. So my estate is going to get a $100,000 loss because it's got $400,000 of basis and it's got the $300,000 of life insurance. So I get a $100,000 loss. My, my basic gets a $100,000 capital loss. And capital losses, you can't really use them right away a lot of times. Um, and, and here's, 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 um, Brent and Rachel, they have $100,000 basis, both of them. And so combined, they have $200,000 basis. So they bought me out for $300,000, but they have only $200,000 of basis. So they have, they have $100,000 less basis and my estate has, um, a potentially unusable or drawn out $100,000 loss. So this escort buy sell thing for redemption is not really tax efficient because they have less basis and I have an unusable loss. So it would have been better for Brent and Rachel if they had set up a side deal, a side partnership where they held the $300,000 policy on my life and then, and then they got allocated $300,000 death benefit and then each of them would have $150,000 basis. And, you know, they use the money from the partnership to buy me out. So they, they get a $150,000 basis each of my stock. So they, they, this cross purchase agreement, it, it gives them, it gives them more tax basis on, on this S corporation that's an accrual basis uh, entity. 
or if it were a C corporation. Again, if they owned the life insurance outside, they're going to get the basis when they buy me out. Now, the tough part of the C corporation is how are they going to get the money to pay the life insurance premiums? See, if they're an S corp, you can get tax, you can get distributions every year, you get the income out, income tax free. But from an from a C corporation viewpoint, they're going to either have to get that out through a dividend or maybe just through bonuses for their services they perform. So the cross purchase is more tax efficient, but there's a lot more gyrations to go through to get there. Uh, now there's, there's a, it's, it seems like there's a, yeah, sorry not to cut across you there, Steve, but it seems like the, there's a practical issue, right? You, there's the, there's the tax result that of course we all really want the tax result, but then there's a very practical piece to it, which is the cash flow issue. And the cash flow issue can be very challenging to match up with the beautiful tax result that you want. Yes, that's correct. That's correct. Yep. And, and, and cash is king. Money talks and you know what walks. <laughs> and, and speaking of that saying, I had a client who, um, he was a, a, a wonderful businessman and, and he made his fortune and he decided he would, he would help out the startup company. And he was their, their business advisor, uh, not as a, like, not like you and I would be as attorneys or not like a CPA would be a business advisor. He was just a businessman who helped them figure things out. He got them connected with banks. He got lines of credit set up um, and helped them with their contracts. I mean, just all, anything to help them run the business. And and they gave him some shares in their S corporation. And and they had a buy-sell agreement. And this 300000 example I gave you was actually kind of realistic. It probably was about what is what the purchase price was. Well, when they collected their $300,000 of life insurance and they were supposed to buy his estate out for $300,000 um, and the corporation collected, collected this, this money, uh, they said, you know, we're having trouble now that he's died. Uh, we, we, we have, you know, the banks are not as happy with us and Steve, we really need to keep some of this money. So we'll buy you out. We'll buy out the estate for $100,000. Instead of the $300,000 that we collected. So then at that point, the family was left with a choice, which was sue or just let it go. Now this guy had an estate that was, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 million dollars. Um, so guess what their answer was? Forget it. We'll eat the $200,000. We'll let them walk their, go their ways. It could be his legacy to these people who took advantage of him, but it's still, it was still a gift from him to them. Um, so, so that's what they did. So now would there be, you know, should there be some kind of protective arrangement? So there, there, there are ways that you can, um, file something with a life insurance company that says that, um, they can't pay out the money until, until everybody signs off on it. Um, if you're in a, if you're in a more sophisticated business, what I like having is a standalone, Life insurance LLC. And the way the life insurance LLC works is the, the, um, the, the, everybody who's, who's involved in the business is a member of the life insurance LLC. And, and the life insurance LLC holds policies on all, on all the different owners. Okay. But let's suppose again that I'm in the life insurance LLC with Brent and Rachel and, and, and we're going to have a policy that's on my life. 
So the life insurance LLC is going to own the policy on my life. And Brent and Rachel are going to be the ones who are going to pay the premiums. And they're going to get allocated all the death benefit so they can buy me out. And similarly, you know, Brent and I would be allocated the, the life insurance on Rachel, um, and et, et cetera. Um, so what we do is that we have an independent person be the manager of the LLC. And they're the ones who hold the life insurance policy. The, the manager does this. And, and, the, and often it's the, the CPA for the company because they understand what's going on. And, you know, when it comes to all the cash flows to manage, we talked about paying the premiums. Now you manage all the cash flows. <clears throat> well, the CPA understands all the cash flows coming from the company that wind up in the LLC. Uh, and so they can they can do the accounting for it really easily. So I really I try to get the CPA to be the manager if they're, if they're willing to do it. Um, if they're not, Plus everybody everybody always trusts the CPA. Anyways, it would never be the lawyer; it'd be the CPA. If somebody trusts somebody, <laughs> and and the and and the CPA's marching orders are very simple. <clears throat> he gets the money in, he pays the premiums. When the policy is collected, he sits on the money. And not until all of the members sign off will he disperse it. So, so I've died. Brent and Rachel are allocated the, the life insurance. Okay. But my estate has to sign off before Brent and Rachel can get their money. And what's going to happen is that my estate is going to say, all right, we got the buy sell. You're going to perform under the buy sell. And once you've agreed to the perform under the buy sell, that life insurance comes comes out and it's used to buy you out. And if there's any money left over, you can keep it and use it in the company or do whatever you need with it. Um, but it sits there until it's actually used. And in that other case, when I was talking about that S Corp, if we'd had that in place, the company never would have said, well, I'm going to keep the money because um, they wouldn't have been able to use it at all because the CPA would be sitting on the money. And, and they're not allowed to do anything until they get everybody signing off. So, so I like the life insurance LLC. Um, there, there are other issues that could come into play. Like, let's suppose we had this escort and, and there's, there are these policies on us. Now, now let's suppose we have the life insurance LLC. And so, you know, so, so Brendan, Rachel and I are all in this and, and Rachel decides to go out and start her own business. And, and, and then, and we arrange to take care of buying her out or whatever else. And then we don't really need the policy on Rachel's life anymore. And she doesn't need the policy on our life anymore. Well, because, because it stacks as a partnership, when you make a distribution of the life insurance contract, it, it's not going to be a taxable event. So, so if, if Rachel gets a distribution of the policy on her life when she leaves, there's no income taxable event on that occurrence. Now, let's suppose instead we had an S-Corp and, and we had the policy owned by the S-Corp and Rachel left. Well, she would either have to buy the policy from the S-Corp or it would give it to her as a distribution. But when a corporation makes a distribution to a shareholder, that's a deemed sale of the asset. So there would be a tax event on the S-Corporation getting the policy out to Rachel. And similarly, you can also imagine like if the S-Corp got sold – and the life insurance wasn't needed anymore. You've got issues on trying to get the life insurance out of the company because um, it's not a business asset anymore. So for all these reasons, I really do prefer the cross-purchase with the life insurance LLC 
Um, but you got to be willing to put up with all the paperwork of the life insurance LLC. So if you had the $300,000 business I was talking about, they probably wouldn't be interested in doing that. But, you know, if you've got a multi-million dollar business and they're willing to pay the professional fees and get the CPA to track everything, you know, then the life insurance LLC is very much worth their while. Absolutely. And there's a, there's, there's two issues that you've, you've alluded to here. One is holding the life insurance inside the company. We're talking about closely held companies, right? If you have a key shareholder or the key shareholder, and that's, and that's a, a C corp or an S corp, and they may have a taxable estate holding the life insurance inside the company is the worst place for it. Because when they die, the company's worth whatever the company was plus the proceeds. So you've just enriched the company and inflated the value of the person's estate by the proceeds. Plus, as you point out, you can never get that policy out unless it's a almost worthless term policy. You almost can never get it out of the, the company without being charged a capital gain on the transaction. It's a, it's a nightmare. Well, even a term I, policy, I have, if, they're, if they're old or sick, there may be value in that term policy. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I've, I've had yeah. I've had times when we've had shareholders who were who were sick. I mean, they got cancer after they got the policy, and and now it has some kind of extra value, and and you're going to go and get an appraisal on that, and, and it's, it, it can you know it's several thousand dollars to appraise the life insurance policy to to really get the true value of it. Yeah, absolutely. And the other the other issue I have seen with with uh, the life insurance LLCs, which I love as a concept, I think are really a slick way to handle this issue, is I once saw one, it was an S-Corp, and they had a life insurance LLC, and they had what essentially amounted to a cross-purchase agreement, except the cross-purchase agreement was with the life insurance LLC. It was the buyer of the shares. I remember saying to the CPA, don't you think it's a problem that this LLC is going to be holding on to S-Corp stock at the end of the day? And the CPA couldn't understand what I was talking about. I was like, well, that's not an eligible S Corp shareholder. It's going to blow up the S election. That's right. You have to be really careful not to mismatch tax rules. You know, you got the benefit of having a partnership in the LLC while everybody's alive, but then when somebody dies, you don't want to unintentionally ruin your S election. And, and that's, that's a great point. And that's, and that, and that is why, and, and that's a nuance in what I said before that's good for you to bring out. Cause what I was saying is that the LLC would distribute the money that Brent and Rachel would use to buy me out. Yeah. And, and, and so that's, that's a very important nuance that, that Brent and Rachel are the ones who are buying me out. Now, presumably we're going to do it at closing and there's going to be checks going across the table so that there's, they really don't get their hands on that money, but, uh, but, but they actually are the people who are buying it and the LLC is not buying this S Corp stock. So absolutely terrific point, Brent. So let's, well, let's talk about then the, the so-called transfer for value rules. We've we've sort of danced around it a little bit, but because you're talking about you know, distributing a policy out of a partnership or distributing a policy out of a, a corporation, so maybe let's uh, illuminate those rules just a bit because they are quite important. And and I mean another thing that could occur if let's suppose we don't have the life insurance LLC, but we have a, a cross purchase. So maybe maybe um, you know Brendan and Rachel own this policy on me, but they just own it jointly, or maybe. Brent has one policy on me. Rachel has another policy on me. And then, you know, and then, you know, Rachel goes to start off her business. And so now she's selling her policy on me to Brent. 
she's selling her policy on Brent to me, and we're selling our policy on her to her or maybe to a life insurance trust she sells, she sets up. So we have all of these taxable events that are going on. And when you have taxable events, you have two consequences. One is really obvious. There could be a gain on the sale of that policy. You know, especially, you know, if, if, you know, if God forbid I got cancer, God, that's going to, it's going to present a lot of uncertainty in the value of those, of the policy. Um, and, and the, uh, and another, another issue is though that, um, is, is the taxability of the death benefit. So we have kind of a multifaceted rule. So the transfer for value rule says, so, so first of all, life insurance is ordinarily income tax free. And there are two exceptions to that mainly. One is the transfer for value rule and the other is this other uh, business owned life insurance thing that we're going to get into later. So, the transfer for value rule says that if if a policy on my life gets sold, then the buyer is not going to be able to use the death benefit tax-free. They're going to have to pay tax on that death benefit because they did, there was a transfer for value going on. Uh, and now there, there are exceptions to the transfer for value rule. Um, one is a permitted transferee. Which is like if you, if, um, if I sold Rachel's policy to her, she's the insured. So that's an exception to that rule. There's an income tax consequence to me selling the policy on her life to her. Um, but, but it's not going to taint the death benefit because she's the insured. So she, so she gets that income tax free death benefit. So the other would be if it is a permitted transfer in what we would call a substituted basis transfer. And a great example of that would be a gift. So let's suppose that um, we have our business going on here and instead of instead of me dying, I don't die now. Instead, my daughter comes into the business. Oh, that would be too confusing because her name is Rachel too. Okay. My son comes into the business, Michael. So Oh my good, son- not Frank. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That would be that would be trouble for Brent. So Michael comes into the business, and and I have the, these policies on Brent and Rachel, and and um and now so I give my the, my policies to him, um, and so I made a gift. So that's the substituted basis of the transaction. There's no tax on it, and he just gets a carryover basis. Um, so similarly, if I formed a partnership. That's generally going to be an income tax free situation. So if I put, if I put, if I like, like, or let's suppose that we decide, okay, I, we have these policies on each other and we really want to be able to get into this life insurance LLC. We didn't want to mess with it way back then, but now we're ready for it. So if we contribute our, our policies to the partnership, okay, that is, um, that is a transfer for value there because I transfer my policy and I get a partnership interest back, my LLC member interest. So that is a transfer for value. But because the formation of the partnership was an income tax-free event, that's a substituted basis transaction. The partnership takes my basis of the policy. And so so then I don't have to worry. We don't have to worry about the transfer for value rule because it was a substitute basis transaction. So that's the rule that existed for many, 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 many years. Now, what the 2017 tax law change said was 
that well let me uh, let me uh, before I say what it said let me say what what is targeted so basically there's a lot of policies that gets that when somebody gets old or sick um they'll they'll get sold on the life settlement market so the family might not want to keep up with the premiums so they sell it on the life settlement market they get a lot of money for it um sometimes you actually get to even keep the de- some of the death benefit and you get money so so sometimes there's a a, a double benefit for the family with it but they sell in the life insurance settlement market. Well, these people are just in it for the money. They're not in it because they have an interest in your, in your, they'll suffer a loss if you die. They're in it just because they want to buy your life expectancy. So they're in to game the market to, to try to just make a profit off of people's life expectancies. Um, and so, um, so Congress said, no, 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 no. This life insurance settlement market, those people, they don't deserve a tax-free death benefit. They're not suffering a loss by your death, so they don't get to get income tax-free benefits. So, so what they said is, if you if you do a sale that's kind of, that's like a sale in the life settlement market, um, that's what we call a reportable policy sale, and the exception to the transfer for value rule doesn't apply. So, um, if I if I um, tra- if I sold my policy um, to somebody who's a permitted transferee that wouldn't trigger the transfer for value rule. But they don't have a sufficient connection to me where my death would, would cause them to suffer a loss. Then, then that's what's called a reportable policy sale. They don't get to use that exception of being a permitted transferee, and so, um, so they're gonna ha- they're gonna be taxed on the death benefit. So this this reportable policy sale thing is basically you you the the, the person who 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 gets the policy um, needs to have a family relationship or a financial relationship or a business relationship such that, again, their loss is going, you know, your death is going to cause them a loss. And what's really interesting, so we, you know, so, so we estate planning people. So when you think of charity, you think of having like, and that's estate planning. So you would think under the portable policy set rules, that's got to be something like family, right? Because that's kind of like estate planning. Well, no, it's not. It's it, it, they're not family members, so they don't get that exception. So, so it's a financial. You need to show there'd be a financial loss to the charity. So, how you would show that is if the person was a, was a substantial donor or a substantial volunteer. And what does it mean to be a substantial donor or volunteer? Um, it's it's like the Supreme Court's definition of pornography. I know it when I see it. So, <laughs> there you go. So, so we don't know exactly what that charity exception means, um, but but um, but you need to have these um, these uh, you know these these substantial relationships. Now, if you have a buy sell agreement, so if I die and Rachel and Brent have a buy a, a purchase obligation, then they obviously have a contractual obligation that arises because of my death. So they they would be having a financial or business relationship that would enable them to be you know good buyers. So it's not a reportable policy sale. And then they have to be buyers who are permitted transferees to be able to meet one of the exceptions of the transfer for value rule. But because my, they're my business partner there, they're going to be in that permitted transferee as well. So, so that, you know, so they'll, they'll be okay under, under that particular rule. There's, there's one trap that it's, it's a little bit off the beaten path, but close enough that some of the financial advisors are going to really be concerned about it. So deferred compensation, 
So a lot of times, so so you have your qualified retirement plan, but you have but but those get capped out at certain limits, and then they supplement executives retirement benefits with a deferred compensation plan. So so here you have this employer who who needs to save up to pay all this money down the road. So I mean, normally if you have a qualified retirement plan, well you can accumulate that money tax free inside the plan. Well, what about the employer? Here's the employer. They're, they're setting aside money to pay the employee, but all the earnings they earn on that money that they set aside, all those savings, all those investment earnings, they're going to have to pay income tax on it. Well, the life insurance industry says, well, I got a deal for you. You don't have to pay tax on this. Buy a life insurance policy on the employee, and then you can accumulate all the cash value income tax free. And then you can use a debt benefit. You, I'm sorry, you can use the cash value to buy them out when they retire. So a lot of these non-qualified deferred cut plans are funded with life insurance on the employee. Well, when you first buy it and they're your employee, well, yeah, you have an insurable interest in them because they're your employee. I mean, if they die, they're not going to be able to perform services for you anymore. So you suffered a loss. So, you know, they're good people. They're not strangers. So, so, so buying a, a you know, doing any kind of a transfer with other policy wouldn't really change anything. Um, but what happens if the life insurance policy doesn't perform as you like and you want to swap it in with another life insurance policy on that person. Well, if they're still an employee, fine. You can do your code section 1035 like kind of exchange. That's, that's all great. What if they are, um, what if they retired and you just have this retiree, you know, obligation and, and you're, and you're using life insurance to fund it. Well, you don't have a loss if they die in fact, you have a gain if they die because you don't have to pay them their deferred comp anymore. So, so they're, so they have become, they have become strangers to you now in terms of you don't lose anything if they die. So if you do, if you want to do a 1035 exchange to, to get a new policy, that's not going to be subject to income tax, but it will taint the death benefit because they're strangers to you now in terms of you don't have a, a, a loss on their death. So, that is one thing to be concerned about. If you're funding deferred comp with life insurance, you need you need to be aware before you before you do a swap of that policy. And that, that is an issue that the life insurance industry identified and it told their brokers. But whether their brokers think to say, "Here's a disadvantage to buying this plan I'm giving you," <laughs> that's another that's another question. Yes, uh, and, quite and, a question. <laughs> and and they, they they just might not think about it because it's not you know it's not part of the benefits of what they're selling. Um, so and we know we know the life insurance agents. There's there's two kinds. There's life insurance agents who know what they're doing and they know all the ins and outs and they want all their clients of all the craft on it. And and they're and they're the kinds of people we like to work with. And Brenda and Rachel, we would only refer our clients to people like that. There are some life insurance companies who. Agents who they're in it just to make their sales and they don't know all the nuances. And I'll tell you a story about one of them in a minute when we get into this other trap on the employer life insurance. But anyway, so, so, you know, you, we advisors have to keep our, our, our eyes open when we have the, these deferred cop plans. So I think, I think we can probably move away from the transfer for value rules now and go to the last thing. Well, and I think if there's any sort of takeaway there, like very broad strokes takeaway on the transfer for value rules, is that when you read in the brochures that the the death benefit on these policies is is income tax free, 
It comes with an enormous long list of things that Steve just enumerated that would say otherwise. You know, you got to be really careful not to step on the wrong rock and, and bruise your toe, so to speak. Otherwise, you're not going to get the outcome that you were sold. Yes, yes, absolutely. So so then the, the final thing here is employer-owned life insurance. So, so these rules on employer-owned life insurance apply to buy-sell agreements as well as strict like employer owned policies. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what the rules are, but first I'll give you a little bit of background for why we have them. So picture somebody like Walmart, and I'm not saying it was Walmart, but I'm just doing an example. Um, and, and they have all these, they have not only their officers and their, and they have their, their store managers, but they may have their line managers. They may have their stock boys. They may have their greeters and they have, Thousands and thousands and thousands of employees. And you can take an actuary and, and you can predict like clockwork, you know, how many people are going to die and, and, you know, and what, you know, and so if you can buy a policy on them, you can buy life insurance on all your employees and you can get the equivalent of tax free interest by just buying policies on all your employees. So, so now, 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 now picture this. And, and, and again, I'm not saying this is Walmart who's doing, it, but just picture this. You've got, you have the, you have the stock boy who dies and there's a $50,000 policy on the stock boy and, and that goes to the company. Now that doesn't look too cool because what about the stock boy's family? <laughs> They're left out in the cold. So, so Congress said, no, 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 we don't like this. You're getting the equivalent of tax free interest and you're not even benefiting the, Families, you're taking advantage of your, of your, of the employees' lives. And for goodness sake, you're taking advantage of your stock boys' lives. It's not like it's your, your key executives. It's your stock boys for crying out loud. So we are not going to let you get an income tax free benefit unless at or before the time the policy is issued, you notify the employee of the amount that might be collected. And it could not, and it could be even a, a higher amount. You know, you know, maybe you have policy as a variable amount. Maybe you have a, a, a cash value death benefit that may be going up over time. So you need to tell them the maximum amount. And again, if you're going to say the maximum amount, you could, you could say if it's a million dollar policy, you could say 10 million. There's no downside to saying 10 million for the million dollar policy. Um, but, but if it's a million dollar policy and you said a million and you wind up collecting a million one hundred thousand dollars, You've not notified them over the, about that extra hundred thousand. So when in doubt, you want to tell them more. Say too much. There's no downside whatsoever to doing that. So you need to tell them the amount, and you, you need to tell them, hey, I, the company, own the policy, and when you die, I'm getting that benefit. Your family isn't getting it. I'm getting it. So you have to have that in a notice of consent. Now you have to have that whenever you have a, a policy on an employee, but the rules that they use to define employee are cross-references through some employee benefits provisions and the tax laws. And those, when you drill down to them, they include any 5% owner. So let's suppose that Brent and Rachel and I are partners in a partnership. It's just a general partnership. We formed it together. We're just in doing business. We're oblivious to joint several liability. We're just partners. Okay. Now, I am not an employee. I'm a partner, but because I'm a 5% or greater owner, these rules apply 
to insurance that the partnership takes out on my life. So for your buy-sell agreements, if you have at least a 5% owner involved, you need to get the notice and consent. Now, I have two ways of doing that. The first way is you get a one-page form that you sign, you know, you give it to the insured, they sign it, you got it for your records, boom, it's taken care of. Um, now, I was doing a buy-sell for a client, and they had just gotten some life insurance, and I and I asked the agent, well, did you get the notice and consent? And the agent said, of course I did. I said, okay, well, would you please show it to me? I mean, you heard what I said about the notice. It's a one-page thing with only a few items on it. It's a really easy thing. Please send it to me. So he sent me a notice to the insured that says, um, you're, 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 the company has a policy on you. Talk to your tax advisor about the tax implications. That's what the notice said. That did not qualify as the notice of consent. And and I and we, we just made the agent go back and get the policies reissued and get the notice and consent. And they were term policies and it was just recently done, so it wasn't really that big a deal to get them reissued. There's really no good cure in ninety-nine percent of the cases if you haven't done that. Now, I always want to go and get this from my file because I want to give it to the IRS, but it's really good to backstop it because you never know when somebody might not go and follow the procedure. So in my buy-sell agreements, I, I, I have the notice and consent built into the buy-sell agreement. So, so everybody is signing off on it, and they know that it's going to go with the buy-sell. They've gotten their notice and consent, so now they're going to be safe. Now, what would I rather show the IRS? A one-page form that clearly complies? Or a buy-sell agreement that may have all these terms and whatever in it, the side of it. I want to show them the one-pager. So I do both. I put in the buy-sell agreement to protect me in case that form doesn't get issued. But I do prefer to get that form. You attach it. Do you attach it as a schedule to the buy-sell or you make it an an independent clause inside the buy-sell? Well, well, within the buy-sell, I have an independent clause that talks about What's going on? I, I might do a schedule. It depends on how detailed all the information is. But yeah, so, so sometimes I do do a schedule and, and I'll, you know, I put that in my life insurance LLC too. Cause the life insurance LLC is a partnership that has insurance on the life of a partner as a 5% owner. So I, I, I put that into my life insurance LLC, but my life insurance LLC has an exhibit that says here are the premiums, here are the death benefits. You know, there's the premium obligations that people have to sign off on, on paying anyway. So all of that schedule is attached in their schedule A where all the contributions are made. So, so I, I've got the, I've got the notice and consent built into it and I, then I incorporate by reference the, the schedule. Yeah. Um, I love that. So get, get your bells and whistles and, you know, because we want to protect that life insurance death benefit. And, and I, and I did, I did have one where the agent did not do any of this stuff. And, and they came to me in 2012 doing planning and, and they were, and, and they, and they wanted me to do like the gifting before the exemption was going to go down. And one of, and one of the people was terminally ill. He was the president of the company and the, and the largest shareholder. And the company had, had the buy sell life insurance on him and they did not have the notice of consent. The life insurance agent was totally clueless. Uh, and, and what I did is I went through. And I cobbled together, um, here's everything that this guy signed, and through all of this, he understood 
that he was being insured, that was going to the company, what the maximum amount was. He insured all of these things. And I had him sign an affidavit to that effect that he understood all of that from this. Did that work? I don't know whether it legally complied or not. Um, we, we, um, on the corporate tax return, the S corp return, when he died, we attached uh, form 8275 where he disclosed an uncertain tax position and, and we, and we attached the affidavit and the supporting documentation. And we said, here, you know, here it is. We don't, we don't, we, we, you know, we think that this complied, but we don't know for sure. And so here, here it is, IRS. And, and as far as I know, the IRS never audited that return. So I think we're able to skate by with it. But, um, you know, I told the company, you got to wait until the statute of limitations expires on that return before, you know, you really can keep that money and use it what you want to do. Because you might have, you might, you know, the, the owners of the S Corp might owe taxes to the government on their distributive share of that life insurance death benefit. So big, you know, big, big potential problem. And, you know, if you're the advisor, you need to keep your eye out for it. Any policy that was issued on or after a particular date in August 2006, you need to make sure there's a notice and consent. So a good takeaway, no matter what kind of advisor you are, if you know there's life insurance that's owned by a business entity, again, whether it's buy, sell or, or on your key employees, whatever it might be, it, whatever life insurance an entity owns, go and look for that notice and consent. And I, I encourage people to go and look up the rules. They're in code section 101J. Um, anybody who listens to this who is um, a, a tax professional, um, you're welcome to, to get the information from me. Um, I have a set of materials. It's a few thousand pages long on structuring um, agreements for, well, structuring businesses for, you know, co-sale businesses, estate planning, income tax consequences, and it's free. So I'm not selling anything to anybody here. So you can, you can, uh, you can get my, my, uh, my, my few thousand page PDF that has, that has all these rules in them. And, um, and you can get quarterly updates for free as well. So, um, so I'm happy to, uh, to do that and to, you know, work with other advisors and help you make sure you get everything, your I's dotted and your T's crossed. Yeah. I think that the main takeaway then, right, is that it, it really is complicated and advisors need to do their due diligence when a client brings this up that, Hey, I've, I've got this buy sell agreement. I've got this cross purchase agreement. Start going through the documents. And make sure everything's been done properly up until that moment. Mm-hmm. Well, Steve, we uh, very much appreciate you lending your expertise and time to us. And you mentioned the the materials that you've put together, which I commend to everybody. They're they're fantastic. And getting your updates. Uh, if people want that, or they just otherwise need to reach out to you, how do they contact you? They can email me, sgorin, S-G-O-R-I-N, at thompsoncoburn.com, T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N-C-O-B-U-R-N.com. Uh, but, of course, you can always just do, you know, just an Internet search for Steve Gorin, and and um, and it, my, my firm is pretty good about optimizing it, so you'll probably get me on your first page. I'm certain they will, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Steve, again, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Great talking with you, Brendan and Rachel. 
Hey listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.